to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of John, chapter 12, verse 12, as we follow along with today's lesson. So Jesus went over, took a towel, and girded himself with the towel. And then he came back after he had poured the water into the basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that he had used to gird himself. And then when he came to Simon Peter, Peter said unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I do, you do not know now, but you will know. (laughs) So Peter objected, and rightfully so, I think. (laughs) I can't imagine the Lord washing my feet, and yet that's just the kind of Lord I serve. It's sort of when he came to John the Baptist to be baptized. John said, Lord, you ought to be baptizing me. And and I'm sure Peter felt, Lord, I should be washing your feet. And so Jesus just said, Peter, you don't understand now. You will understand. And Peter said unto him, you will never wash my feet. I mean, I won't allow that. And Jesus answered him, if I don't wash you, you really have no part with me. And Simon Peter said their name, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Peter's, you know, all gung-ho all the way. Uh, you know, this, if it means being a part of you, Lord, I want, I want it all. And I love Peter for this. I mean, yes, he's impetuous. But you got to love him. And so Jesus said to him, He that is washed needs not save to wash but his feet. He is clean every whit. And now you are clean, but not all. Now, uh, in the Roman baths, which uh, they had Roman baths in Israel at the time, up in the area of... um, the Yardinette, uh, not the Yardinette, uh, the uh, area of Galilee, it's the southern part of the Sea of Galilee and uh, over on the Golan side, they, they have a, a Roman bath that is still being used to the present day. And uh, when they would come from the baths, they would be there, they would have bathed, but when they came from the baths, 
uh, as they would come into the house. Of course, they had picked up dust on the way, uh, and thus they would wash just their feet, but they were completely clean, and all they needed was their feet to be washed. And so Jesus is making a uh, aversion to this. Uh, all you need is your feet. And um, he that is washed needs not save to wash his feet. He is clean every whit. And you are clean, but not all. For Jesus knew who should betray him. And therefore he said, you are not all clean. Now John lets us know that Jesus knew Judas Iscariot. Earlier in the gospel, John tells us that Jesus said, have I not chosen 12 of you and yet one of you is a devil? Jesus calls Satan, I mean, he calls Judas the son of perdition. And so he says, have I not washed, are you not all clean, but not all? Uh, he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you're not all clean. So after that, he had washed their feet and had taken his garments, went back over and put on his uh, robe again. Then he said unto them, do you know what I have done to you? Did you get what I'm trying to tell you? You call me master and Lord. And you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Jesus had said unto them concerning the ministry, He that is chief among you, let him be the servant of all. Jesus said, the Gentiles, they love to exercise lordship over others, but it shall not be so among you. And he that is a minister among you, let him be as one who serves. So Jesus now is demonstrating to his disciples what the ministry is really all about. It is serving others. It is the call of God to serve others. And so this is what he was saying to Peter. You don't understand right now, but you're going to understand because Jesus is going to explain what, is, what he's doing in washing their feet. You call me Lord, you call me Master. That's, that's correct. I am that. But if I'm your Lord and Master and I wash your feet, then it's an example. You ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. I, I'm just giving you an example of what the ministry is about. Peter tells us that Jesus set an example for us that we should follow in his steps. Verily, verily, I send you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. 
neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. I'm sending you. You are my servants. You're not greater than I am. If I, your Lord, am willing to serve you, then you must be willing to serve others. I'm set the example for you. And if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Now, there are certain fellowships in the body of Christ who to the present day practice foot washing. They have foot washing services. I've never been in one. Uh, I have had on a couple of occasions people who felt that the Lord had called them to wash my feet. Um, If I had had an advanced notice, I would have changed my socks. But but there are churches that do practice foot washing services even to the present time. We do not accept it as general church practice. The reason being is that we really do not find any examples of it in the book of Acts, nor is there any real definitive teaching on it in the epistles. And generally, that which we accept for church practice is something which was practiced by Jesus. We have examples of it in the book of Acts, and then we have teaching on it in the epistles. Thus, water baptism, taught by Christ, commanded by Christ. We find it practiced in the book of Acts. And we find teaching by Paul on the subject of water baptism in the epistles. And thus, we accept water baptism as one of the ordinances of the church today. The partaking of the Lord's Supper It was taught by Jesus, and he said, as often as you do this. It was practiced in the book of Acts, and again we have teaching on it in the epistles. And that is why we practice as one of the ordinances of the church the taking of the Lord's Supper. But though Jesus set the example of foot washing. As I said, it doesn't live up to the full criteria. We don't really find it as a general church ordinance or practice in Acts, nor do we find it really taught, as I said, in a definitive way in the epistles, and thus um, we, we don't practice water or, or foot washing today. Now, um, in those days, it was a very common practice Uh, because people generally wore open sandals. The streets were very dusty, or many times there was no paving at all, just uh, dirt paths. And thus, uh, your feet would get dirty. 
And uh, when you would come into a home that was all cleaned and all, the servant would be at the door to greet you and to wash your feet. Your sandals would be left then at the door and you would go in barefooted. And, and even to the present day and in many of the Oriental cultures, you don't wear shoes into the house. Uh, you take your shoes off before you enter the house. And it's still a custom in the Orient in many places. And so uh, you can see the necessity for it. And of course, you can see how that it would be a uh, real example of that of a slave, because usually the lowest slave in the house was the one whose duty it was to wash the feet of the guest who would arrive. Years ago, here at Calvary Chapel, when we had just built the little chapel on the next corner, and we had put this long shag carpeting, which was popular then. <laughs> it was the end, you know. And, and, and we got a green color because we wanted to give the idea of a lawn, you know. And... Uh, <laughs> We had the glass windows and the grass right outside, so it was sort of bringing the outside in. And we had burnt orange pews so that you get the idea of it sitting in a garden to worship God. And it was very lovely, very beautiful. And uh, don't laugh, it really was, I'm serious. And so the fellow who sold us the carpet because some of the hippies had started coming to the church and, and really they helped us in the construction of the chapel very much. And, and he said, now, he said, I just want to warn you. He said, the worst thing in the world for a carpet is bare feet. He said, there is an oil in your foot when it mixes with the dirt it's practically impossible to get out of the carpet. And so you really need to think about that with all these barefooted kids coming to church. And so an issue arose, whether or not we should allow the kids to come into church barefooted because of this beautiful carpet. And so when some objected and voiced objections to them coming in barefooted and all, I said, well, if this is going to become an issue, I said, personally, I'm in favor of ripping the carpet out and having concrete floors so that we can just say, hey, come on in to anybody, barefoot or not. And if that's still a problem, next Sunday, I'll be at the front door with a basin of water and I'll wash these kids' feet before they come into church. Well, they were embarrassed about the pastor sitting out with a basin of water. <laughs> And so they relented and let them come. You know, what's a little dirt on the carpet? 
I don't know. The Lord must have put some kind of a stain guard on that because that carpet just wouldn't wear out. Even when Shag went out, it was still good, you know. So what can you say? But there was a need for washing feet in those days. Uh, thus, it was, a, it, was a, it was a beautiful gesture. But as I say, we don't really find the church practicing that as we come into Acts. Jesus said, I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled that he that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it is come, that when it is come to pass, you might believe that I am he. The prophecy of scripture, that he who eats bread with me is going to lift up his heel against me. That is, he would be betrayed by a close, intimate associate. Because eating bread, as we have mentioned before, was a very significant experience for them, uh, symbolizing a oneness, a closeness. And uh, so the prophecy was he would be betrayed by an associate. And so Jesus said, I've told you before it comes to pass that when it does come to pass, you will know that I am uh, he. Actually, prophecy is intended to prove to us that God is eternal outside of time. It is also used to prove that the Bible is inspired by God. For he declares the end, he said, from the beginning. He laid out history in advance. He told things that were going to be before they ever were. So that when they did come to pass, you might believe that this was truly God which spoke and that God is eternal outside of time. So he said, Verily, verily, I send to you, he that receiveth whomsoever I send receives me. He that receives me receives him that sent me. So you have been sent by the Lord to bear witness. If a person receives you, they receive Jesus. If they receive Jesus, they receive the Father. In the same token, if they reject you, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting Jesus. And if they're rejecting Jesus, they're rejecting the Father. When the disciples were rejected, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer persecution for Jesus' sake. And when Jesus had thus said these things, he was troubled in his spirit. Now, in the previous chapter, we find him troubled in his soul, in the emotions. Uh, he was troubled uh, at the tomb of Lazarus. And now he's troubled in his spirit and he testified and said, Verily, verily, I send you that one of you shall betray me. One who has eaten bread with me will lift up his heel. 
Then the disciples looked at one another, doubting of whom he spake. The interesting thing to me is that the disciples did not suspicion Judas Iscariot. He must have pulled off his role pretty cleverly in that uh, there seems to be no indication that he was a suspect at all uh, above the others. So when Jesus came out directly and said, one of you is going to betray me, they looked at one another, wondering who it was. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. And as we've pointed out before, uh, John's the only one who tells us uh, that he was the disciple that Jesus loved. I mean, none of the other, in none of the other Gospels is John called John the Beloved, uh, nor do any of the other uh, Gospels say, you know, that Jesus especially loved John. He's the only one that tells us that. <laughs> you know, I think it's great when you know that Jesus loves you. I think it's wonderful that John had that feeling. He loves me. And that's a feeling we should all have. He loves me. And so John is using this uh, to describe himself, leaning on the the closeness of John. He he was that kind of a person, was close to Jesus, leaning there on him. And Simon Peter therefore beckoned unto him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. So then he that was lying on Jesus' breast said unto him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now the sop was a, uh, it was a gesture of friendliness. It, it's sort of like, lifting the cup in a toast, a gesture of friendliness. And Jesus gave the sop to Judas, and after the sop it said, Satan entered into him. And then said Jesus to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, Judas had already been to the high priest. He had already struck his deal. He had already covenanted with the high priest that he would lead them to Jesus in an isolated place away from the public crowds where they could arrest Jesus without stirring the public because the people were looking at Jesus as a prophet. And so Judas had already made his covenant with the high priest. John tells us when he gave him the sop, Satan entered him. Um, Jesus said, have I not chosen you, but yet one of you is a devil? There are some Bible scholars who believe that Judas Iscariot was not really a man, that he was Satan incarnate. That's hard and difficult to prove. It's just a theory by some 
theologians, but it's something to consider. And so Jesus commanded him, what you do, do quickly. Jesus is still in control. Now, John tells us, and here again the interesting thing, no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. Some of them thought, because Judas was the treasure, he, he kept the money, that Jesus had sent him out to buy those things that they would need for uh, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Or that he should go out and at this time uh, give a gesture by giving something to the poor, as, as is often the case at Christmas or Thanksgiving when we think of the poor and, and as a part of our celebration uh, we like to give something to the poor. So the disciples thought, well, Jesus has sent him out to maybe buy something uh, for the preparation for the feast, or maybe he sent him out to get something for, or give something to the poor. But you see, they didn't suspicious. They didn't suspicion Judas, which is interesting to me. He then, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. And therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. The time has come. And if God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself and shall straightway glorify him. In the previous chapter, Jesus said, What shall I say? Father, deliver me from this hour, yet for this hour have I come. Father, glorify thy name. And the father responded and said, I have glorified it, I will glorify it again. So now the time has come. Little children in terms of endearment, technia, just little children. Yet a little while I am with you, and you shall seek me. As I said to the Jews, whether I go you cannot come. And so I say that now to you. Just in a little while you're going to be seeking me, but you can't come. And then a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. That is an amazing commandment. Now, in the uh, first epistle of John, and I would suggest for you advanced students that you go ahead and read the first epistle of John this week, and notice how John refers to the commandments of Jesus. Jesus, in, in, in a little bit in the 14th chapter, actually, in the next chapter, will also say, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me will be loved of the Father, and we will come and manifest ourselves to them. But in his first epistle, John will make reference to the commandments of Jesus. What is the commandment? that we love one another as he has loved us. One commandment, but boy, does that cover everything. Our loving one another as he loved us. He said, greater love has no man than this, and a man will lay down his life for his friends. Love one another as I have loved you. That is, with that love that is so deep that we would lay down our lives for each other. 
And by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. As I look at the church history, my heart aches because there has been so much hatred manifested between different denominations or different sects. There have been what were termed holy wars, if there be such a thing. I don't think any war is holy. But you read Fox's Book of Martyrs. You read of the atrocities during the period of the Reformation. And neither side was totally innocent. We read Calvin's Institutes, but you read some of the things that Calvin said and Calvin did, and, and nobody is innocent. And how we could come so far from the commandment of Jesus is difficult to understand. And thus the witness of the church has been greatly weakened by the fact that there is so much infighting and bitterness between the churches. If God would do one thing for us, I pray that he would do this above everything else, and that is give us this kind of love. And I'm not referring just to those in our body here, but for the whole body of Christ. That we develop a love for all, even those that don't agree with us on every issue that we have this kind of love that will bear witness to the world that we are his disciples. Now, Simon Peter, not so interested in this commandment as he is the things that Jesus has been saying about, I'm going away and you can't come. So he said unto him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you can't follow me now. You will follow me afterwards. Now, I think that Peter realized that Jesus was talking about death. When Jesus said this to the Jews, they thought that maybe he was talking about committing suicide. Is he going to kill himself? And in, in another place where he told the Jews the same thing, they said, where's he going? To the Gentiles? To teach them? What does he mean? But I think that Peter caught the meaning because he said, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Lord, if you're going to lay down your life, I'll lay down mine. I'll follow you into death. It's interesting that Jesus said, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. Interesting that all of them did follow him in death, with the exception of John, the writer of this book. Every one of the disciples suffered violent death at the hands of men for their witness and testimony of Jesus Christ. And when they came to crucify Peter, he said, look, crucify me upside down. I'm not worthy to die as my Lord. So 
Peter said, Lord, why can't I follow you? I will lay down my life for your sake. And Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Peter had made quite a great claim. Jesus is challenging it. Will you lay down your life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, the cock shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Now, Luke tells us that when Jesus told this to Peter, Luke gives us a little more addition here. He said, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And when you're converted, strengthen your brethren. And then he predicted how that the sifting by wheat was, was going to be Peter's failure in that test where he denied his Lord. He said, you're going to deny that you even know me. Peter objected. He said, Lord, if they would kill me, I would never deny you. And yet we know that Peter did deny him. There are issues involved in the denial of Peter that I think led directly to the denial. First of all, I think that this boasting in himself Lord, I will lay down my life for you. That's a boasting in himself. The second was his arguing with the Lord. Know this, if you ever find yourself in an argument with the Lord, you're wrong. (laughs) He thought he knew himself better than the Lord knew him. He was indignant when Jesus said, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. He was indignant. Lord, I would never deny you. I would lay down my life for you. And so that boasting in himself and arguing with the Lord, those are a couple of issues that can get you into trouble. Next we find Peter sleeping in the garden when the Lord told him to pray. When Jesus had come back to the disciples, he said, Peter, Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Sleeping when he should be praying. The third or the fourth thing that we see is when Jesus was arrested and led to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, we read, and Peter followed afar off. Attempting to follow Jesus afar off is another thing that can lead to denial. If you're going to follow Jesus, stick just as close as you can. The closer, the better. Don't try and follow afar off. And then finally, where was he when he denied the Lord? He was warming himself at the enemy's fire. Be careful about trying to find warmth at the enemy's fire. Sometimes Christians seek to do that. They seek to go back into the worldly things to find a little warmth, a little excitement. And they're in the wrong place. 
and being in the wrong place can often lead to denial. And so with Peter, you can sort of follow the course that began with self-confidence, boasting of himself. And so when Peter said, Lord, I, why can't I follow you? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus said, will you lay down your life for me? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, the cock shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Now, I don't like to stop there, though I know it's the end of the chapter. I believe that Jesus went right on and said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. I believe that those words were spoken by Jesus to comfort Peter. Peter, you're going to deny me. You're going to be really shaken over this. And he was. When the soldiers said, surely you are one of his disciples, your speech gives you away. You have a Galilean accent. He began to swear, to curse, and he said, I don't know the man. And the rooster began to crow, and Peter remembered the words of Jesus before the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. And when he thought on these things, he went out and he wept bitterly. His heart was troubled. I have failed the Lord. Actually, we read in one of the Gospels that when the rooster began to crow, Jesus, who was standing there, looked over to Peter, caught his eye. And I'm sure that the look that Jesus gave to Peter wasn't one of, I told you so. <laughs> Nor was it one of, you rotten crumb. You did it, didn't you? But I believe it was a look of tender compassion that broke Peter's heart. I think it was a look that said, Peter, <laughs> I knew it all the time, but I still love you. I still love you. It's interesting that Peter carried that. He carried that look. He carried that guilt. When Jesus was crucified and placed in the tomb, I'm sure it haunted Peter that the very last thing, the very last contact with Jesus was when he had failed. That look of Jesus. I failed him. I denied him. I love him. And I, I feel, I'm sure it just haunted Peter. And so when Jesus rose from the dead, and appeared to the women. He said, go tell the disciples and Peter that I have risen. And Peter was one of the first ones that Jesus appeared. He, on the day of his resurrection, he appeared to Peter. When the disciples came back from Emmaus and met the other disciples, they said, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to the women and to Peter. The Lord had that personal little talk with Peter afterwards. And then, of course, John gives us great insight into the talk at the Sea of Galilee with Peter uh, when Jesus sort of recommissioned him and put him back to, into business up there at the Sea of Galilee. So we'll get that as we move through John and get to the last chapter, 21st chapter. We'll, we'll get the ministry of Jesus to Peter. But even here, as he is predicting, he is saying, look, let not your heart be troubled. 
You believe in God, believe also in me. Peter, your problem is that you believed in yourself. Believe in me. Don't believe in yourself. Believe in him. Don't believe in your ability. Believe in his ability. Trust in him. Let's turn to John chapter 14. Jesus has finished what is commonly called the Last Supper with his disciples. It was the Passover meal where he took the elements of the Passover meal and gave to them a total new interpretation. The Passover meal was a memorial meal. The various things that they ate were to remind them of their experiences in Egypt. The bitter herbs, the salty water, the little mixture, pasty mixture of honey and nuts, all were symbolic, reminding them of the tears, the salty water, the bitter herbs reminding them of the bitter experiences of being slaves, forced labor for the Egyptians, uh, the pasty mixture reminding them of the mortar that was used in uh, the brick buildings that they were forced to make. And so all of these things were reminders of Egypt and then God's deliverance out of Egypt. Uh, the uh, meal was very symbolic, but Jesus changed the symbolism. He made it more than just a memorial service of coming out of the bondage of Egypt, but now it is a new meaning. The broken bread is representing his body broken for us, unleavened because he was without sin. The cup now is to remind us of the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for our sins. And so it's a whole new meaning that Jesus gave to the supper. Supper is over. He has predicted that one of the disciples is going to betray him. And then he identifies that disciple as Judas Iscariot and he sends him on his nefarious task. Now Jesus begins to talk to his disciples and in the 13th chapter, Verse 33, Jesus said, Little children, yet a little while I am with you, and you will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I go you cannot come. So now I say to you, the same thing I said to the Jews, I'm saying to you, I'm going to be with you for just a little while, and then where I go you cannot come. Now Jesus went on to say, I'm going to give you a new commandment that you love one another. And by this love, all the world will know that you are my disciples. But Peter is stuck on this previous statement. I'm going to go away, uh, like I told the Jews, and you can't come. And so Peter asked a question. And this is the beginning of a question-answer session with the disciples. It actually begins here in chapter 13. 
It's after the dinner. Uh, Jesus is sharing things with them. Uh, it's a time of their questioning Jesus of the things that he is saying. And Jesus responds uh, to their questions. And so having said that he's going to go away uh, in a little while, they can't come uh, where he is going. Uh, then Peter said unto him, Lord, where are you going? First question, where are you going, Lord? And Jesus answered him, where I go, you cannot follow me now. You will follow me later. Peter questioned again, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And then Jesus predicted Peter's denial before the rooster would crow in the morning. And so Jesus went on to say, after predicting Peter's denial, let not your heart be troubled. I believe that he is addressing this basically to Peter, knowing that Peter's heart was going to be severely troubled after he denied the Lord, but also knowing that the rest of the disciples are going to have troubled hearts when they see him hanging on the cross and dying on the cross. Their expectations of the Messiah was far different from his being uh, crucified, suffering and be putting to death. Their expectations were that he was going to establish the kingdom of God uh, immediately, that they would be ruling and reigning with him over the earth. And they had forsaken everything to follow him and follow this concept of the Messiah. And so he is saying, let not your heart be troubled. They are going to be facing troubling times and troubling experiences uh, the next day as he will be put to death there on the cross. But he said, you believe in God, believe also in me. This is the first sort of remedy for a troubled heart. Believe in me. Trust in me, Jesus said. And, and you know, that is truly a cure for a troubled heart. Whenever you're concerned or worried or you begin to be anxious over uh, situations that you don't understand, you're confused. Oh, how wonderful it is just to put your trust in Jesus. It's saying, just trust me. Just trust me. But you know, that's oftentimes hard to do. If I don't understand what he is doing, it's hard to trust him. Sometimes the, the things that he is doing uh, don't make sense to me. And I find it difficult at times to trust him. More or less like the fellow who was uh, climbing, doing some mountain climbing, and he lost his grip and started sliding down the mountain. And, and in desperation, he grabbed out and caught hold of a bush and found himself hanging over this great chasm a thousand feet down. And he was just hanging there. And he said, oh God, help me. And the Lord said, just let go, son. And he held on all the tighter and he said, Lord, I said, help me. And he said, trust me, just let go, son. 
And he stopped and halted and he finally said, Lord, help me. And the Lord said, just trust me, let go. And he said, is there anybody else up there? <laughs> we don't understand what he's saying. And, and, and sometimes we find it difficult just to trust him. We'd we like to have some other kind of advice maybe uh, than what the Lord is directing uh, for our lives. So he says, in my father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you. Many abiding places. Now, just what is meant by this is, is a matter of theological discussion. Uh, I would like to just give you sort of a possibility. I, this isn't doctrine. This isn't... Uh, you know, we're not going to write any uh, treatises on this. But I think that we have made a mistake in thinking of mansions uh, like something in Beverly Hills uh, with swimming pools and manicured yards and so forth. And, and that's usually our idea of a mansion. Um, seven bedrooms, five baths, and, you know, country-sized kitchen and this kind of thing. I think that in our new bodies, we're not going to require sleep. So why would we need bedrooms? I don't think he's talking about some little cottage down the path or some big mansion down the path. Many abiding places. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Paul the Apostle in his second letter to the Corinthians chapter 5 said, We know that when this earthly body, or this earthly tent rather, the body in which we presently live is dissolved. So he likens this body to a tent. We know that when it is dissolved or when this body goes back to dust, the component elements that make up our body, that we have a building of God not made with hands that's eternal in the heavens. Now this building of God that he is speaking about is the new body that I'm going to have in heaven, the new heavenly body. You see, the Bible teaches that the real me is not this body. The real me is spirit, and I live in this body, which this present body is a tent. When you think of a tent, you never think of a permanent place to live. You think of a vacation, and it's good for a couple of weeks, but oh, it's so nice to get home again. And to the conveniences of the house, where you don't have to heat the water. Uh, on the stove in order to sponge bathe but you can get in and take a shower or just relax in the tub and and so a tent is good for temporary but you don't think of it as permanent you'd think you were abused if your husband moved you permanently into a tent <laughs> and you would be so when this tent temporary dwelling place for my spirit goes back to dust I have a building of God not made with hands, a new body. 
not with all of the ancestral genetic kinds of malfunctions that are passed down through the genes or weaknesses or uh, tendencies towards different things. But a new body, a building of God, not made with hands that's eternal in the heavens. So then we who are in these bodies, Paul said, we often groan earnestly desiring to be freed from the restrictions of the body, not to be an unembodied spirit, just a essence floating in the universe someplace. We'll return with more of our in-depth study of the Gospel of John in our next broadcast as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order John 12-13 through 13 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Father, we give thanks for your love and we ask that you will put your love in our hearts that we might love one another, Lord, even as you loved us so that we might be a witness to the world of what you're all about, that we might be loving, Lord not just to those who are a part of our fellowship or agree with us, but to all of those, Lord, who are your disciples and who love you. Unite our hearts, Lord, in your love. In Jesus' name, amen. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. Have you ever had a friend who's not a believer and they ask you a question about the Bible and you're thrilled? Finally, they want to know about God, but then you go blank because you can't remember the scripture that would answer their very question? You're not alone. It happens to me all the time, and I think, if only I had a quick scripture reference that would help me right then and there, that would be perfect. 
Well, guess what I found? Pastor Chuck's Old and New Testament study guides are available to download as ebooks instantly to your phone or mobile device. Now, whenever you need to find the meaning to a scripture reference quickly, you can. Pastor Chuck has written great little Bible commentaries to help anyone come to a better understanding of God's Word. To find out more and to read a book preview, visit thewordfortoday.org and click on the link to download the Old and New Testament study guides by Chuck Smith. Or if you would like to order these books in print, call The Word for Today at 800 272 